0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Career Diaries by Elamed, the podcast dedicated to talking about careers in the medtech industry. I am super, super excited to have with me Philippe Bastide, CEO and co-founder at Diagnostic. And um, Philippe, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what your company does?
1: Hi, Elena, and, and thank you for uh, having me uh, joining this um, this event. Um well, a couple of things about about me so you you mentioned it before. my name is Philippe bastille uh, I'm the CEO of uh, of a company called uh, Dianosic. uh, I've been in the industry space for quite a long time now. Uh, I started in pharma at Pfizer a long time ago uh, where I was in charge of um, of market access um, topics uh, at the French affiliate level uh, so after that, I, I had the opportunity to, um, to embark on a, on a medical device venture at uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, more specifically Eticon, mm-hmm. where I continued to be involved uh, in market access, but at, at a, a European level, at an EMEA level, as we, as we say. Um, and, and I was in charge of the, uh, of the Emostats uh, portfolio for, uh, for, for, that, for that company. Soon after that, I I had the great opportunity, and and I think we'll come back to that in a a moment, uh, to um, lead uh, the the effort of developing uh, a startup company acquired by J and J called Acclarent, which was involved uh, in the field of ENT, which is really something close to my heart, and I was. a, a business unit lead for a couple of uh, European markets plus Middle East. And I had also in charge of professional uh, education uh, in EMEA. So that was really the first time I had a chance to uh, uh, get my, my feet in the, in the business ground, so to speak, after this, uh, this market access uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I then uh, joined a company called Livanova, Mm -hmm. where I spent a couple of years, Uh, the company is involved in the the, the cardiovascular and cardiac surgery field. Uh, And I I was actually supporting uh, uh, um, startups incubated uh, at New Ventures. That was the name of the group in which I worked at that time. Uh, And I was uh, helping those guys from startups, but also internal projects, extremely innovative, uh, to To move forward uh, in particular in the field of uh, of market access once again, and then uh, we uh, we arrive at uh, at um, that 's uh, an interesting interesting story. Uh, I was still at Livanova when one day uh, my phone uh, rang, and uh, a former customer of mine from from a client. Uh, told me, yeah, Philippe, uh, I have an idea of of product. Uh, There are a couple of unmet needs in the field of ENT. Uh, What do you think about that? And I knew the the surgeon was a French surgeon, was extremely creative with a lot of ideas, but I was not so sure, even though I I found this very exciting. Uh, He came back to me a couple of weeks later, insisting, and I was rethinking. the idea was good. So I, I started to pressure test the idea with a couple of, a couple of other people I, I knew in the field of ENT, And really that sounded like something uh, attractive. And then I, I just uh, made my, my decision to um, really change world and move from the corporate space uh, to reach the, the, the startup space. That's how everything started.
0: And so, tell me a little bit more about your your company and kind of the products there that that you guys have.
1: Well, as I said before, we are dedicated to ENT, ear, nose, and throat, and and more specifically to the 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 nose the nose part. Uh, we are interested in two particular areas. The first one uh, deals with epistaxis or nosebleeds in in okay. general. Uh, but also um, to other, uh, let's say, mechanism that uh, intervenes uh, in in the nose. Uh, And and the first product that we have developed, which is an asymmetric uh, balloon that you inflate in the nose, that conforms nicely to the anatomy, can stop bleeding, but it can do also other things. Uh, for other procedures like septoplasties or ethmoidectomies, I'm, I'm not getting into the details, but uh, this is a, a really an interesting technology that we just started to, uh, to deploy. Sorry, and uh, in parallel, we are working on a, on a longer-term project in the field of uh, chronic uh, sinusitis mm-hmm. with um, um, a resorbable um, implant that you leave inside of the nose for a a long period of time, approximately 12 months. And in in this device, uh, you you have a a steroid that is encapsulated and that will elute over time to treat the underlying disease.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, So like a combination device then? Absolutely. That's a combination device. Nice nice and complex i'm sure the regulatory people would be loving that a nightmare a nightmare (laughs) so so coming back to your story then so it's it's really interesting obviously because you know you started off in big corporate then you kind of had these glimpses into the startup world but still being obviously backed by big companies um and and really living you know that that corporate life at the beginning for sure um that is a question that a lot of people frequently ask. You know, should I go from my role in a, in a big company to a startup? What, what pieces of advice would you have for people that may be thinking about that?
1: That's an excellent question. And I, I, I went through that myself. Uh, what I can tell you is that if you start thinking too long, if you start making things extremely rational with two columns, the columns for the plus, the columns for the minus uh, even if if the the plus column uh, is full of things, uh, it will you know um, be very easy for you uh, to find one element in the minus column to say "I won't do it so just, just, you know, just do it and, and don't think about the minuses because you will find minuses. Uh, and I think there are too many people finding bad reasons not to do it.
0: What do you mean by bad reason?
1: Well, bad reasons is uh, very often uh, it's too risky. Mm. That's one. Um, you know, I, I, will, I will lose the, the comfort of being in the large corporation. Uh, what about my salary? Uh, what about my, um, my family? Those types of things. So th- the first thing you need to secure is really uh, having your partner uh, supporting what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have that, uh, it, it can create a lot of frictions and the rest will not follow naturally. So secure that first, uh, which I did. And, and then uh, just focus on the good reasons. I want to be excited about something new. Uh, I, I want to do something on my own, which is very rewarding, starting from literally zero, uh, and, and bring that to the market, to the patients. Uh, those are the good reasons.
0: Mm. It's really interesting because you know when 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 we talk about startup, the word that always comes out is risk, right? So uh, especially when we're talking about careers, um, and and frequently that's kind of. The number, well, not the, yeah, the number one objection, I would say, uh, especially for people that are employed by big companies that are are concerned about moving to startup is, oh, it's too risky, you know, because um, of all this kind of uh, press that's associated with uh, startup companies failing. But I have to say that it's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, over the next year, even how that sentiment might have changed, because I think something that we've seen with COVID is it doesn't matter the size of company that you're in you know um you that there's always a risk <laughs> in the end you could be in the biggest most corporate company i mean if we look at some of the stuff that's that's happening you know um virgin are cutting jobs you know a very well-known established uh, company that you would have said okay maybe they're a bit more secure but actually i know people that are in startups that have Kept their jobs, continued growing, you know, continued, you know, all the all the um, all the great things associated. But equally, I've seen people in huge companies that have been cut because of COVID. So it doesn't necessarily mean that big companies equals more more safety. Actually, mm,
1: absolutely, that's absolutely right. And and you can be made redundant very easily nowadays. Uh, so don't, don't wait to be in your late fifties to think, well, the startup can be an exit door. That's not an exit door. Uh, that's an opportunity, and, and you will you will discover how rewarding it can be uh, when you you embark on, on such uh, such a venture. Uh, the the sense of accomplishment has nothing to do, really, for me, and that's my opinion. You know, nobody is obliged to agree with that. Uh, in my view, the sense of accomplishment uh, is is you know. Uh, uh, X-fold um, more important than in a, in a large corporation. You have this, you know, as we say, this helicopter view. You take a project, you bring it from zero, you create a prototype, you see your first prototype, then you have your prototype, fully functional, and you have your first patient. Then you have your product approved, CMART. And then you have your first invoice. And then you start, you know, selling routinely. All those elements, you don't, you don't see them uh, in the same way, at least when you are in the large corporation. You, you are, you are you know in a, in a small space and you operate in this small space. That's by design how you work in large companies.
0: Yeah, it's so true. I think um, it's something, you know, even if I related to my own career history, you know, I, I used to work for a big corporate recruitment company and then I started Element. And the worlds are... are are very, very different, you know, in terms of kind of the fact that when you're in a startup, you basically do everything, right? You have a job description, but if you see a gap and nobody's covering it, you have to adapt, right? And um, we do a lot of recruitment for startups and something that comes out over and over again, especially when we're talking with CEOs of startup companies is around attitudes and around personality, as well as skills. Uh, do you think that, that everybody or anybody is cut out to work in a startup? Do you think that any personality type would work well in a startup? Or are there certain things that, you know, you could say maybe to some of our listeners, if you have this, 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 startup life could be one for you to really consider?
1: Well, I, I think if you, if you are not a, a risk taker, uh, you, should, you should forget about it. That's my, my humble opinion on that, because for sure we take risks. So either you are ready to take risks, and, and, and personally, uh, I see the glass uh, half full from that standpoint, meaning if something goes wrong for some reason, and that can be the case. You mentioned that before in startups very often. Uh, people are all often thinking, well, what am I going to do? Because if the startup collapses, what comes next? I will struggle to get back to the the corporate world. Uh, Where where are my opportunities? I think you should not, again, have a negative approach of failure. You should think that failure can also create opportunities. That's very American. French people don't think like that, very often. Um uh, failure is not well perceived uh, failure will, will close doors moving forward. no, that's not true. You know with startups in the u s for example if you if you did not create a, a first startup uh, that failed before you create a second one that will eventually succeed, investors will look at you in a strange way. You will be suspicious because failure is part of the game. So I think you, you have to consider failure as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and then once you have that in, in your mind, uh, you can take the risks uh, and they are no longer a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's absolutely critical. And, and um, it's, it's one of those great interview questions as well, you know, and, and I think the best interviewers ask this question, tell me about your failures. Tell me about your successes. Yeah, I want to hear about your achievements. But in particular, tell me about your failures. Because, you know, there's so much that you get out of failures in terms of, and listening to people speak about them, you know, like... Yes, it went wrong. Why did it go wrong? What would you do differently? What did you learn, you know? And, and also, the, I think the worst thing that anyone can do is go into an interview and say, I've never, ever failed. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think failures are a natural part of life and, and especially in the startup world, and more important is how, do you, how are you able to react you know, how, how are you solution oriented? So, if something fails, okay, what can we do differently? Or if something is about to fail or failing, <laughs> how can we rescue it? It's, it's more that kind of um, mm-hmm. mindset that I see, um, especially in people that are successful uh, in startups. What would you say are the other kind of major differences that people need to watch out for?
1: Well, so, so we mentioned that uh, be, being a risk taker is, is important because you take risks by, by definition. Uh, I, I think you need to be um extremely um persistent as well uh and and ad- adaptable to, uh, to to changes um because on a daily basis you you may have to change things to react to react quickly to an event which was unexpected uh and those are the typical features that are in my opinion uh required for uh, an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, that will be difficult for you. Example, you have a product, looks beautiful, uh, it addresses an unmet need. um, But for some reason, at some point, it does not fly. You don't know why, but there is something going wrong. Uh, If you, uh, let's say, really persist, but, you know, in a negative way, meaning you become stubborn, you need to persist, of course, but at some point you need also to pivot. Mm. And if you don't pivot, uh, you can just kill your project and, and kill your startup. So be, be adaptable, you know, be be persistent. But at some point, realize that it's not going to fly and pivot. We, we did that with, with our company already uh, in various occasions. And that's probably why we are still there.
0: Mm. Mm. It's it's critical, that idea of being able to pivot and and being adaptable and also being able to keep a a, a cool head when dealing with um, major issues. I think also. Right. And the pressures of of, I'll give you an example. It literally just happened today. Literally just happened. Um, We've been working on a salary calculator for the last. I can't even tell you how many months. It's been an ongoing project for a very long time. It's been built up, built up, built up. And uh, we literally, a few hours ago, launched it. So we sent it out to our mailing list, published it on LinkedIn. Um, and guess what happened? The website, know. our website completely crashed. So imagine we had thousands of people going onto the website to download this report. And the whole thing went down. So Matilda, our marketing manager, you know, um, all of a sudden had to jump into this mode of, I need to manage this crisis now, right? Like get onto the website, hoster, make some phone calls. And within 30 minutes, she had it fixed. Now, some people might not be able to, to you know, that might be something that would make them freeze and uh, it would be days and days to try and fix it. Whereas like, you know, it's being able to prioritize and stop what you're doing and deal with immediate issues and have to just, find a way, find a solution. <laughs> so there's loads of examples like that, I think, in startup companies. And I'm sure you've got loads yourself. Oh, well, yeah, sure.
1: Um, That's interesting what you say, uh, Elena, because, uh, you know, I, I remember in, in large corporations, uh, you, you tend to, uh, to be uh, a, as organized as you can. So you have, um, it's a bit of a caricature, but you, you have a, a shopping list and you, Okay, you tick the first box and the second one, and at the end of the day, the things you had on your plate are done. Mm. In a startup, you, you cannot do that. Because because of what you mentioned, this can happen, you know, in, a, in five minutes, someone will call me and tell me we have a crisis, I need to run. Um, that's, that's our life. But, but that's, that's also what makes it very exciting.
0: Yeah, and it keeps, keeps the energy going, and, uh, you know, no, no two days will ever be the same no starter, That's I can guarantee well look, I'm glad that you're you're um, you're having a good experience of it um, and so okay so what would you say you know I want to talk to you about MDR you know because uh, the medical device regulation is something that obviously you know is a major having a major impact on, on the medtech industry I read your article which was a bit controversial <laughs> but I, I like a bit of controversy actually <laughs> So for me, it was really interesting. But, you know, I go to loads of conferences and people are always talking about the impact to startup companies and, you know, this is killing startup companies. So as a CEO of an up-and-coming startup in medtech, what is your take on the new medical device regulation?
1: I think we would need an extra three to four hours to discuss that. (laughs) But uh, no, first, what I believe is that uh, there was a need. To change um, the way devices in general uh, have been have been evaluated for the past twenty years, uh, we, we have seen some some companies. There is a famous French one, Pip. Uh, you know, cheating um, the system, uh, and there was really uh, a need to uh, implement new new rules. Um, so that it does not happen anymore, once you have said that, uh, it comes to what do you need to implement? I think that the directive was not perfect, clearly, but we are moving from probably something that was not enough to perhaps something that is in some instances uh, a bit too much, uh, and too much means. In our case, we are, for example, uh, with with our asymmetric balloon, we are a class two a device. The 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 ton of even though we were not submitted to uh, to MDR at that time, but the ton of uh, information uh, that is now required, uh, despite what I consider being. A, a a minimal, you know, level of risk with a product like that. The ton of information is just incredible. Uh, So it's um, very cumbersome uh, for uh, startup companies. Uh, It's also, it becomes extremely uh, expensive. uh, And we need to bear that in mind. We we deal with notified bodies, which are either uh, semi-public structures or um, close to uh, completely uh, private structures, Um, and they charge you. They charge you for their services. Uh, And MDR is uh, inflating this this cost um, for for startup companies. So I think it's uh, something that will, let's say, uh, add a bit of quality uh, in the system, but at at what cost, I'm, I'm uh, I'm just wondering. The cost is for me probably a bit too high, especially for some particular products, low risk devices. uh, And and I'm really challenging that. Mm -hmm. Um, What I believe as well is um, that clearly, even though there was a need to to change something, uh, modifying the, the way devices are evaluated was probably not enough. It should have been a good opportunity to reflect on who is evaluating devices. I'm, I'm personally a big advocate of having uh, EMEA, the uh, European Medical Agency mm-hmm. uh, in charge of devices evaluation. I, I think having notified bodies in charge of that, and that, that's controversial, huh? we talk about contro- controversy, I think it's controversial, uh, but I, I, I genuinely believe that the future is in the hands of uh, the, the EMEA. Um, like like what what FDA is doing mm. you know, it's, it's no big difference they are in charge of devices and and drugs mm. uh, could probably do the same in uh, in Europe even though it would take a long time
0: do you think it will go that way because I have heard conversations around that but then the argument that I, the counter argument I heard was if they wanted to do that they would, you know, they, they they would have done it. But, you know, there is a need for notified bodies in, in the market. You know, it's further scrutiny of notified bodies was needed. That's why they put in also all these extra, um, you know, requirements, you know, towards notified bodies, as well as notified bodies filtering it down onto the manufacturers. Um, but uh, I've heard the counter argument that there is a need to have a, noti- a system that uses notified bodies as opposed to a system like the U.S.,
1: Personally, I, I do not support that, that statement, um, but, but that's part of, uh, of the controversy I uh, highlighted on, on my post on LinkedIn. Um, I think, you you know, as, as a base, uh, it's always better to be evaluated as a company by a, by a fully uh, public uh, entity. Uh, you may become suspicious when you have private companies um, charging you for their their services um, when when it comes to uh, approval of um, of medical devices and C marking. I think it would be better uh, if a, a public European uh, structure would actually be in charge of that. that. That's the base. Then we can discuss the details, we can discuss what would modified bodies uh, become in the future, what, what they would be in charge of. Uh, this is clearly uh, you know, not something I gave a lot of thought um, about. But, but, but the base should be for me, uh, this public, um, you know, uh, entity in charge of the evaluation.
0: If you're an outsider looking in, you know, and not really, if you don't know too much about the intricacies of the medtech industry, you would assume that's how it's done. Right. Because if you look at any of the other industries, you know, if you look at pharma industry, if you look at chemical industry, it typically works, as I understand, like that. And obviously you're coming from, you know, you said you came from Pfizer. So you've obviously seen how it works on the pharma side. Um, so, so then, there's probably, you know, it, 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 that there would be arguments for and against. I, I would imagine, but it's definitely a contra- controversial point, and I'm sure the notified bodies, that are, people that are listening to this, have definitely got their point of view uh, and their justifications on that.
1: Um, oh, no, but just one one thing to uh, to, to mention, uh, Elena, which is important. You talk about people uh, from notified bodies. That may listen to our conversation. They are good professionals. For Not against them. Uh, it's again, it's against the way the system has been designed. Uh, it's nothing more. Uh, and I think, you know, you can't just say uh, just say the things are set in stone and will never change. Uh, it, it can change, but there will be some resistance. There will be some arguments and counter arguments. Uh, I just uh, told you uh, in which camp I am, that's all. Mm-hmm. I don't pretend I have the truth.
0: No, no. And I think, you know, it's, it's definitely um, an interesting concept. Definitely an interesting concept. And uh, what, what we what I think we are seeing is an assimilation towards similar processes that we are seeing in pharma, right? So typically it's widely understood that in terms of the way things are regulated and in terms of the processes that are set up and, you know, um, the way that the, even the, the jobs are done, what we see is that, you know, pharma seems to be um, a little bit more mature as a market. And so, you know, with with, with the new regulation, all these extra um, requirements on, you know, the, the post-market and um, the clinical piece, you know, it seems to be quite closer to what the pharma industry already kind of has in place right with pharmacovigilance and and, and such activities um so you know that there, there is an argument and who knows what the future will hold i mean who knows what the system's going to look like in in 20 years but it's definitely you know definitely an interesting point point to make i want to i want to ask you about um innovation with mdr though because um the other kind of like big topic um that comes out of this is it becomes much more um, expensive to have a startup company in Europe. Um, it is more difficult to get to market, it takes longer. The burden is higher. Therefore, startup companies uh, in Europe are going to decrease or their startup companies that are outside of Europe will not look to Europe as their initial you know, market of entry, which is historically what a lot of companies did. They went to Europe because the burden was a little bit lower than if you were to look at the US. What do you think is the impact of MDR on innovation in particular?
1: Hmm. Another, another tough and, and, and good question. I, I think what we have observed uh, over the past couple of years is a, is a sort of a shift between Europe and the US. Hmm. Um, like 10 years ago, even a bit less than that, uh, companies had a tendency to go to Europe with medical devices because it was easier. Now with MDR, it becomes uh, extremely complex, to say the least. And so at the same time, uh, the US also had discussions uh, at various levels, and we're thinking, okay, uh, what can we do to attract companies in the US and be ourselves, you know, as a healthcare system, more attractive, more welcoming for those, uh, for those companies. Uh, so, the, the, you know, they implemented uh, different types of things. But just to give you our example, uh, it's been really much easier to get our product registered in the U.S. Uh, compared to what it was to get it see marked in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um despite that and, and because i think you know it, it comes also to who you are as a citizen. Uh, business is important, but what what you believe in is also important. The company was born in France uh, we have uh, an important footprint in France and in Europe, and we wanted uh to start in europe. Mm. for for those reasons as well. There are other reasons. Uh, but if it would have been only business reasons, we would have, you know, gone to the US straight away and, and we would have forgotten about Europe. So there are you know it's a matrix analysis uh, and the fact that we we have this footprint was also an element that uh, made us decide to start here. Uh, But it's not so obvious, you know, to make this call.
0: Mm. And I think it's, it's a valid point that you make about kind of like who you are as a company and also where you're based, because let's say a company that's in the US right now, a startup company that's developing a product, you know, historically, they may have said, hey, let's go to Europe first. And now they might be saying, well, there's no point. Let's wait and see how NDR pans out. There's, you know, uh, issues with notified bodies, not responding, not wanting to take on new clients, all this other stuff as well. They're busier with, with bigger companies. The burden is much higher, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And now we go to the US first and then we see how it pans out with Europe. So, you know, I think um, it, where European com- uh, European startups may still really believe in, in that market, you know, um, potentially we could argue that the strategy uh, the go-to-market strategy may have changed of other startup companies that are not based in Europe. You know, and Europe is not, not such a, an attractive uh, market for them, maybe. Um...
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. And I think it's, it's not only a, a regulatory conversation here that we should have. I think uh, when people tell you, well, but, you know, in Europe, when, when you get CMARC, uh, you have access to a broad market overnight. It's, it's partly true only because people have a tendency to forget that, you know, CMARC is not the Holy Grail. Holy Grail is reimbursement of your devices. And, and it, re, it remains um, a, a responsibility of individual member states uh, to define uh, how reimbursement is managed. It's not a European uh, decision. So even though you have CMARC, there is an additional hurdle, uh, country by country, that you have to overcome to get your product really fully adopted.
0: Mm. That, and, and how does that impact your, How would that impact a strategy then of a startup?
1: It depends on the type of uh, of devices that you uh, you have actually in your in your portfolio. Uh, either you have a product that is let's say uh, intra DRG. Um, and I don't want to be uh, you know, too technical here, but if, if it's a hospital product that is or, or already paid uh, with the DRG money that uh, hospital receive uh, for the procedures they perform, that's fine. It's just a pricing discussion that you're going to have uh, uh, to have with them uh, to define what is the, the right price point. Uh, if it's a product that will be reimbursed on an outpatient basis, uh, something you're gonna buy uh, in a pharmacy or something that is uh, paid on top of DRG, then uh, the discussion is is completely different, and you have to think upfront. Okay, if I look at the European situation versus, for example, the US, how complex will that be mm. to get my product, uh, you know, paid for, covered? Uh, in, in those different markets.
0: And and what about if we talk about investors then into startup companies? Um, is that, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you're, you're, you're speaking with, with them regularly. What's their sentiment towards um, the new regulation increased burden? You know, do, are you seeing investors maybe um, also not so interested in investing in certain types of startups or startups with certain types of strategies? Or...
1: I would not um, I would not say that I I would say first, there is a big difference uh, in terms of um, behaviors from investors uh, located in the US versus Europe Uh, first, because the the amount of money that is invested uh, for the same company uh, in Europe versus the US is very different. They invest more massively uh, in in the U.S. So when you can get, for example, 2 million euros uh, in Europe, you may get maybe seven or eight in in the U.S. or maybe even more. Uh, So it's not the same type of of discussion. What they want to see in both cases, um, all investors, they want to see a clear roadmap. They don't like surprise factors. They don't like you to come back to them and say, oh, by the way, I, I forgot that in my BP, uh, it, will, it will take uh, one year, two years more than planned. Mm-hmm. Because it's extra money that they might have to inject. And it's also a, a product that will not deliver uh, at the time you were expecting. So, you know, it has a sort of domino effect mm-hmm. uh, that they don't, they don't really like.
0: Mm-hmm. You wrote a really interesting article with regards to positive discrimination and startups. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about that.
1: That's another topic that is very close to my heart, another controversial one. Um, I'm a big believer in, in the need to um, differentiate the way uh, startups. Are treated versus uh, large corporations. Um, there are multiple examples of that. We talk about MDR. So, for MDR, when we deal with notified bodies, uh, the, the invoice that we receive from them for a service they provide is certainly, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but it's certainly the same in terms of uh, rate per hour. Than a large company may pay for. I even suspect the large company may pay less because you know the the, the volume of of product they bring to the five body uh, is is more important. So they, they better not lose this client. If you are a mechatronic JJ a G uh, M yeah. J, you'd better keep this customer. Uh, so perhaps there are some discounts that startups won't get. So this is something that is for me uh, not good. You should you. Should should um, positively discriminate and say okay, a startup has less uh, financial bandwidth, uh, so you should actually provide uh, uh, significant discounts for a service. Uh, by the way, uh, that's what the European Medical Agency does. They have this um, small and medium enterprise uh, group of people uh, that that collaborate with us, and we have special uh, um, tariffs uh, for services that are paid full price by larger organizations so it's not impossible to put in place that's one example then another one uh, you 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 go to a congress for example if you want if you want to have a, a nice uh, spot to demo your devices with a nice booth etc well you will pay exactly the same as uh, again a, a large company uh, so I think that's not good. At least they should offer significant discounts to or and or uh, offer uh, startup corners where we can have, you know, something uh, nicely arranged, but specifically for startups to differentiate ourselves from the large companies. And, and there is no war between large companies and, and, and startups. It's just a fragile ecosystem that you need to take care of Uh, nobody can you know neglect the fact that we are part of this ecosystem and should treat us uh, accordingly and for me accordingly means differently
0: Mm. it's really interesting i mean just thinking about the point that you made about notify bodies i guess kind of like the counter argument would be you know essentially it's it's time spent isn't it so that those people are kind of um, employed and the time that they spend working on your Projects would be the time spent, the same time spent, you know. And the problem that we have is that, you know, with the system that we have, it's a for-profit. A lot of these organisations are private, and therefore, you know, uh, for-profit organisations. And so, it doesn't make a business case to then um, directly cut the rates. I I guess. I mean, you know, I think that. But definitely, is when we talk about events. I'm, I'm surprised because I, I, I've seen some events do do that, right? Or some events are more catered towards startup and have that um, flexibility on stuff like um, pricing or if you, you, know, you want to have a, a stand because for sure, I think, you know, there, it's a slightly different business model.
1: Yeah, it's, it's moving, you're right, but not fast enough. And, and remember, startups, they need to be fast. Yeah. We have no time to lose. So if, uh, if a Congress, you know, manager tells me, well, not for this year, but perhaps next year or the year after, for me, it's already too late. It's mm. now. I, I want to see things changing now in a split second, if possible. Of course, uh, it's not always possible, but, but uh, it's too slow. Uh, and and the, the argument, you know, that you mentioned is for me, even though I can try to be in their shoes, it remains invalid. Um, It remains invalid because uh, if they discuss with me, I would tell them, but guys, okay, you spend time, you know, which is the same uh, with me or with a large company. But if we acknowledge that, uh, you need to differentiate uh, the way we are treated versus those companies, you need to do something about it. And the, the concept behind it is really uh, equity versus equality, equality, sorry, equity versus um, equality. Uh, and I took that example, you know, uh, in, my, in my article, uh, when you are a couple and you, you pay you pay for the rent of your flat, uh, either you cut the, the, the rent price in, in 50-50, or you say, well, uh, each of us will contribute to the rent, uh, according to our uh, personal capabilities financial capabilities mm. uh, and they should they should do the same so they ch- they should actually charge more the large corporations and less the smaller entities
0: yeah I mean listen I, I'm coming from the I'm coming from the startup background so I, I know what it is to kind of always be looking for that discount and uh, you know I think it's a valid point you know that that, that you're making uh, probably right now in terms of you know, the demand that there is for, for notified bodies and the fact that they already have a massive supply issue, you know, um, everybody talks about the bottleneck. I don't think that's been really explored enough and I don't think enough visibility has actually been given to that. Um, but yeah, it's probably not going to happen.
1: <laughs> no, no. Right that's, that's why, that's why uh, I, I mentioned to you before that uh, I'm a strong advocate of having uh, all, all, all that work uh, shifted to uh, the European medical agency because that would resolve the
0: problem overnight. Yeah, I mean, definitely, if you have more of an agency-centralized approach, that type of thing might be a little bit more um, because then, the, 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 then we're not talking about a private you know, profit organization in the end, right? Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's definitely an, an interesting concept. Um, did you know that, so there was a stat that I read, or I was speaking with Martha Lawrence on another episode of the podcast, and she told me that only three percent of women founders get investment.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen uh, I've seen that. Um, Anna, uh, well, that's that's. Let me use the the word uh, shocking. Mm. Um, I'm I'm a strong advocate of uh, you know having more more women on, on board at all levels. Uh, should it be at, as uh, as uh, you know entrepreneurs? Uh, should it be as a member of uh, scientific or strategic boards in companies? Um, we, we, we miss uh, women. Uh, and and it's, again, that's another example of something that is taking too long to change. However, um, I have good hope that things will evolve in the right direction um although I, I hear what you um what you what you said there is uh, i think a publication indicating that for uh, every dollar invested in a company uh, when it's a company um let's say uh, managed by a woman, this dollar is two times more efficient than the dollar invested in a in a company uh, managed by male so it should be a, a, a signal for investors to pay attention to that and, and not to, you know, to find uh, excuses not to, uh, to fund uh, as, as they deserve um, projects managed by women.
0: Hmm. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see a link to that report um, that makes me happy as a, as a female founder, at least of a services company. It's, it, you know, I think it's, it's definitely not something we see enough of in, in med tech, Right. Um, but, um, you know, I, I was really surprised to see that it was only, only, you know, 3% The stat is, is really low. Um, and, um, it, I, I really think that, you know, um, investors need to be more conscious about that. Cause I think women have a lot to give you know, um, and, and have really unique um, ways of, of seeing things because everybody has their own filters, right? And, um, you know, we see a lot of moves being made in big corporates in terms of women and leadership and um, gender diversity and that type of thing. But it's yet, I feel, it's yet really to filter down into the startup world as strongly as, you know, yeah,
1: what we that's, that, that's true. And I think we try to uh, make this change uh, at at our individual level. Um, But even at our level, sometimes it's complicated Mm -hmm. Uh, for for some functions. For example, uh, you you struggle finding, you know, uh, females uh, in in tech, for example, it's more males while in regulatory uh, quality, it's more females, but, but so it's easier. But you have some, some jobs for which it's complicated to find uh, women if you want to bring more on, on board your, your project. That's what we try to do at, uh, at Dianosic, uh, including in our boards, but it's, it's, it's not easy. But at least we act with this sense of, you know, uh, um, need to, uh, to bring more women and give them the opportunity to be part of what we do.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I guess kind of, I'm conscious of time and that, that's, this is absolutely flown by. I have to say, it's been very interesting discussion as well to get your take on things. Um, there, there's always a final question that I, I love to ask people which kind of frames the whole thing, right? So for you, um, what is the legacy that you want to leave on the world?
1: Wow. Um, well, I, I could, you know, uh, serve you the the usual stuff, like, um, I want to be a role model, for example. Okay. But I think that's valid for your kids eventually, or, you know, for in in your, uh, in your personal circle, I think in the professional world, uh, people are using too much of that. I want to be a role model. Okay. Until one day. Um you you get caught with with the hands in in the cookie jar, you know <laughs> so I think nobody you know can pretend he is or she is a, a role model or because one day something happens and you are no longer one
0: yeah so i would
1: I would you know rather say I would love to be perceived as someone who is uh, an optimist um, because i I think i am and, and if you are optimist you really you you believe you can uh you can change things um without overpromising but you can you can try to do your best uh to uh, to to change a little bit things um in this world but but that's that's all i would actually uh actually say i think uh Uh, it's it's Churchill who said that um, you know I'm I'm an optimist Uh, it doesn't seem too much use being anything else okay we can close with that
0: I'll take that because I really like um, the idea of you know approaching every sort of problem scenario situation with um, optimism uh, it is—it's it's really the way forward, and and it's basically been the tone of like the whole conversation, you know, moving to startups, be optimistic, you know, and and try and just give it a go. And I think you know that definitely has come through through our conversation, Philippe. So it's been really really nice to chat with you. Um, I would That's encourage good. anyone who's listening to you know comment. Um, get in touch with Philippe, read his articles if you want a bit of a controversy. <laughs> and uh, Philippe, it was, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank Thanks you. for your time. And uh, to everybody else, I'll see you on the next episode. Take care.
1: It was a shared pleasure. Take care too.